0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 27th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Let me add my welcome to those of you that are guests here. My name is Robert. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and I have the privilege this morning to to serve us as we begin to read and, and trust God to teach us this morning what He has for us from His Word. And we're here on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and we need to be honest and and at least go ahead and admit that for those of us who are followers of Christ and we gather together every single week, every single week we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the reality of our time together. But it is good and it is right for Christians on a special Sunday once a year to remember in a special way the reality that God raised His Son, Jesus, bodily from the grave according to the Scriptures. And it's also important for us to remember and at least acknowledge that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb, it's more than simply a good reason to have another holiday. I mean, for, for many of us, Easter is a great reason to have a special lunch and quite possibly a day off of work. But there's so much more to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave than having another holiday. It's it's worth a holiday, but it's worth so much more. To make it as personal as I can actually make it, everything that I am, everything from the day that I have placed my faith in Jesus as my king, as my savior, Every decision I make from this day forward is built upon the reality of an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I've done to this point, every decision I'm making from this point forward is built upon the reality of an empty tomb. You see, if Jesus did not bodily rise from the grave then from the day that I placed my faith in him as my king and as my savior, my life has been wasted. It's been lived in vain. And as someone who stands here this morning before you, as you focus your attention upon me and listen to me, I would have to be able to say to you with complete honesty that I actually have nothing of value or significance for you this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, it's, it's way more than a good reason to have another holiday. According to churchman John Broadus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is the central reality authenticating the truth of Christianity itself. It's to this glorious, most central of realities that we've actually come and our journey in the gospel according to Mark. We didn't plan it this way. You're not going to believe me. But when we laid out our walk through the gospel according to Mark, we landed at Mark chapter 16, Mark's look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave on this Resurrection Sunday. So if you've got your Bibles, if if you would meet me in Mark chapter 16, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray that God will do what only He can do, That through his word this morning, you will not only be astounded by the truth of Jesus' resurrection from the grave, but that God would for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time, astonish you by his grace towards you in raising his son, Jesus, from the grave. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for giving us breath this morning. The most simplest of things that we take for granted that we cannot do for ourselves, you have done for us in waking us up, and now, by your grace, you've brought us here. And so this morning, I ask with complete expectancy and complete dependence upon you to do what only you can do, as we go through your word this morning, would you astound us? Would you astonish us, not only by the truth? of the resurrection of Jesus, but by the reality of your grace towards us that you've shown us in that resurrection. And we ask that you would do that this morning in the name of your son, Jesus, for his glory and for our joy. Amen. If you've got your Bible, Mark chapter 16, we're going to pick up the story here. Mark says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene... Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him and they're speaking of Jesus here and very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen they went to the tomb now for those of you that are guests with us you you might be wondering what it is I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it so let me just tell you how I normally operate I normally read a portion of the scripture that we're going to look at in the morning and then I stop and I talk And then I keep reading and I stop and I talk, so I'm stopping to talk right now. Look down at your Bibles and go back just a few verses to Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Mark tells us there in verse 40 of chapter 15 that it was these same three women who just earlier had been present, had been eyewitnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus. Why does that matter? There's a few reasons why that matters. One is that these women witnessed the most horrific means of death ever devised by humanity, and they witnessed someone they love with their whole heart suffer under it. They were present when Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. They were present when his body was hung upon that cross. They were present when Jesus died upon that cross. When they were walking to the tomb that first morning, they were not going to a sanitary, cosmetically enhanced Jesus. His body would have already begun to undergo the effects of death, hours taken past. Decay would have already set in. Out of love for him, they were going to prepare his body in what they thought was going to be an eternal rest. And why does it matter? that they saw Him crucified, and that they were going to prepare His body in full expectation that it would be there? Because to this day, even from this first Resurrection Sunday, there have been people who have wanted to propose that on the cross Jesus did not in fact die. In fact, the largest percentage of Muslims will want to tell you that Jesus did not actually die on that cross. Due to the pain, due to the torment, Jesus was rendered unconscious, maybe medically unrecognizable as not dead, but when his body was laid in the tomb, in the darkness of the tomb, and the cool temperature of the tomb, his body would revive. And somehow or another, that brutally beaten, crucified Jesus would be able to get up, maybe take some first century Advil, roll away a stone, and exit the tomb. Mark is writing this gospel account to Jesus about of Jesus to a church in Rome that's undergoing persecution. And Mark's account of the resurrection is particular in the fact that he wants to assure the church of the certainty of not only Jesus' death, but his burial and his resurrection. And so he says right here, these three women who went first to the tomb, they were eyewitnesses to his death. He really did die. He really was dead verse 3, Mark records that while they were on their way to that tomb, they began to say to one another, who is going to roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now, again, I'm going to stop and talk. Go back even fewer verses. Mark chapter 15, verse 47. In Mark chapter 15, verse 47, you will recognize some names. Again, Mark told us that these three women were not only eyewitnesses of the crucifixion and death of Jesus, that he really did die. The Romans had perfected that art of crucifixion. They made no mistake there that two of these women were also witnesses. They were present when Jesus was laid in the tomb and the stone was rolled forward, sealing the entrance. Why does that matter? Why does Mark want to make note of the fact that these two Marys were present when his body was laid in the tomb and the stone was rolled over? Well, people have wanted to say from this day forward, even to this day right now, that these two women, these three women now, maybe in their grief, maybe in their sorrow, I I don't know what other reason they want to posit, but they ended up in the wrong tomb. Somehow that morning, they ended up in the wrong place. Now, that's not only foolish if you think about it from a human perspective, but it's extremely demeaning of them as eyewitnesses, isn't it? These women couldn't manage to get back to the place they had just been the day before. These women knew exactly where they were going. There was going to be no mistake made as to what tomb Jesus was laid in. A guard was placed in front of it. A large Roman guard was placed in front of this tomb, and a very large stone was rolled in front of the entrance of that tomb, and a seal, a Roman political seal of power, was placed upon that stone. These women knew exactly where they were going. They were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion and death of Jesus. He had died, they were eyewitnesses to the burial of Jesus. He really was laid in this tomb. And so walking through that tomb this morning, knowing full well where they were going and having an expectation of what they would find, in verse 4, they looked up and they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And Mark reminds us that it was very large. Now again, read this like a human for just a minute. Can you imagine the thoughts, the emotions, what would be stirring around in their minds and in their hearts at this point? Someone that they had loved with their whole heart. They had witnessed be brutally executed at the hands of Roman soldiers on a cross. They had seen his body laid into the tomb of a rich man He didn't even have his own place. They had been witnesses to his body being laid in there. This person they had loved, this person they had followed, this person in whom they had placed their hope, now buried. And here they are in love, going to do what they could only think they could still do, which is prepare him for an eternal rest in that tomb, and the stone is rolled back. No evidence of a guard anywhere around. Can you begin for a moment to imagine... What must be going through their mind. What emotions they must be feeling. Put yourself in their place and then see if you would do what they did. Mark tells us, upon seeing the tomb and the stone roll back, they actually entered the tomb. Would you go in that tomb? I'll be honest, I'm not sure I would go in that tomb. I saw who was there. I've got all kinds of ideas in my head at that point if I'm them about how that stone got back and I'm not sure I want to go anywhere near it. But they went in that tomb. And when they got there, Mark said they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe and they were alarmed. That is the biblical understatement of the day. (laughs) And this young man said to them, don't be alarmed. Maybe that's the... Bigger understatement of the day. Easier said than done, right? Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen, he's not here. You can see the place where they laid him. Don't be alarmed. You came to the right place. You were here the day they put him in. You're not in the wrong place. Don't be alarmed. Look, you can see right where they laid him. He really was dead. You were right in that. But that don't be alarmed is not simply don't be scared because you see an angel sitting there in the tomb and you're wondering what's going on. Don't be alarmed because what would they be most worried about now? They're in the tomb, the stone's gone. What do you think they're worried about? Where's Jesus? Where's the body? This don't be alarmed is not simply don't be alarmed at the fact that I'm sitting here. It's don't be alarmed as to worrying about where the body is. No one came and took it. I mean, back in that day, grave robbery was a very common thing. Lots of people will be buried with possessions that they had had, and we know that Jesus was placed in the tomb of a rich man, so it would have been natural to assume that there might have been something of value in the tomb with Jesus when he was put in the tomb of a rich man. But... That would be ignoring history to think that grave robbers came and actually took the body of Jesus because let me just tell you this, think about it like a human again. No grave robber was coming within 100 yards of that tomb. There was a Roman guard stationed on the outside of that tomb. There was an enormous stone rolled over the entrance to that tomb. There was a Roman seal placed upon the entrance to that tomb. No local grave robbers were coming within 100 yards of that tomb. So it must have been the disciples who stole it, right? Again, you're ignoring the realities of history. Where were those 11 disciples at this point? They were cowering in fear and disappointment behind locked doors, nowhere near this place. And again, just think about it from a realities perspective. It would have taken the first century equivalent of something like a SEAL Team 6 to get past that Roman guard, to move that stone in such a way that you could dispatch of any evidence that you had been there and to get that body out. Don't be alarmed. You were right. He really did die. Don't be alarmed. You, You came to the right place. He really was buried here. Don't be alarmed. No no one came and took his body. Don't be alarmed. The power of God, he's risen. See, the reality is, from, from this very first Resurrection Sunday, some 2,000 plus years ago, people have been trying to offer various propositions as to why this tomb was indeed empty. All kinds of disagreements about that, but there's one thing people on both sides of the argument agree upon cohesively, and that's simply this, that from that first Resurrection Sunday, there was a movement that began to grow. From that first Resurrection Sunday, something happened, and hundreds and thousands of men, women, children began to proclaim that this Jesus of Nazareth had indeed died, and by the power of God had risen from the grave. And they would do that at the cost of their own lives. See, this morning, if you would come here and and, and you would not believe that Jesus rose bodily from that tomb, We're, we're glad that you're here, but there's something I want you to understand. You also share the burden of proof required to explain how something like this movement, the Christian church that many now estimate to be the size of one-third of the global population actually came into existence. And you can't pass it off as the continual propagation of a legend that these 11 disciples had created when they realized that their leader had died, and they had to somehow come up with a story about how he did what he said he was going to do, which was rise from the grave, so that you could continue to lead this movement that he had begun, so that people would continue to follow you, so that you could have the power and so you could have the authority. Again, think about that proposition from a human perspective. If you were the 11 and you were going to create a story like that and a legend like that, would you not be present somewhere near the reality of what was going to happen so that you could begin to capitalize on the movement that had already been created there in Jerusalem? But where were these courageous, courageous legend creators? They had scattered. They were gone. They were nowhere to be found at this point. historian, Terry Bauckham, who, who's a secular historian, he, he's writing about the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of, of Jesus, and he, he says that no one would create a story and create a legend like this and then be willing to die for it the way that these men will die in a matter of years for believing and proclaiming that a man like Jesus rose from the grave." He said, no legend, no myth has something called an eyewitness. Bauckham says the single best way as a historian to substantiate history is through an eyewitness account. Why? Because you can find an eyewitness. If Mark was part of this process of the disciples of creating and propagating the legend that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave, that he he really did do what he said he was going to do even though he actually didn't do it, he never would have built this legend upon the eyewitness testimony of three women. Why? Because in that day, the testimony and the witness of a woman wasn't even accepted in the Jewish court of law. But three times in eight verses... Mark builds his case for the church reading this first gospel in Rome upon the eyewitness account of these three women. George Ladd, the great English churchman, he says it better than I can. He, he says, It's not the disciples' faith that created the stories of the resurrection. This was no legend made by men. Do you hear what he said? It's not the faith of the disciples that created the stories of the resurrection. You know why? Because they had no faith. Jesus said they were going to Jerusalem, said he was going to be given over, said he was going to be mocked, said he was going to be spit upon, said he was going to be killed, and said he would rise again on the third day. Everything had happened, but where are they on the third day? They're gone. I don't want to dismiss the act of love that these women are showing towards this one that they had followed and loved and going to prepare him. But they were expecting Him to be dead. They weren't coming to the tomb believing that He was going to be alive. Ladd said, it's not the faith of the disciples that created the story of the resurrection, it's the fact behind the story that actually created their faith. It's the reality of the resurrection that actually created the faith of the disciples that carries the story on. George Ladd said the fact of the resurrection and faith in the resurrection are inseparable, but they're not identical. The fact that Jesus rose bodily from the grave created the faith that his disciples began to show. So here's the thing. We don't want to spend the entire morning talking about various propositions that have been made throughout the centuries for why the tomb might have been empty. You just need to know this. If If you do not believe that Jesus rose bodily from the grave, then you have to offer a plausible reason for why the tomb was empty and why he would not be alive right now. Christianity says that Jesus is indeed alive, that he rose bodily from that tomb. And Christianity not only offers an empty tomb, but it offers eyewitness accounts It offers a movement that began that first Resurrection Sunday that has transformed countless millions of cowards into courageous followers of Christ willing to give up their life for Him, and a movement that has changed the course of history and humanity from that day forward. We can't spend all of our time talking about the various propositions for why the tomb was empty because the reality of it is knowing facts about the resurrection that can never save you. Knowing facts about Jesus' bodily resurrection from the tomb it it actually can't save you. That's why we prayed when I began that God would do what only God could do, and that would be to astound us this morning by His grace that He has shown towards us in raising Jesus from the dead, the way that we see it in the resurrection. So, go back to Mark. We're not going to talk about various propositions anymore for for why the tomb may be empty. I want you to see the implications of the fact that it is. Mark, back in chapter 16, verse 7, the angel tells these three ladies to, to go Go tell the disciples and, and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And when they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Go tell his disciples. They're not there creating a story. They have fled. They're scattered. They're not around. You've got to go find them and you've got to go tell them. And they've lost hope. They're now, having been associated with him, fearing for their own life. Go tell them that he's risen, and go tell them that just as he told them before he went to the cross, that he would meet them in Galilee. Go tell them. And then you find two of the most grace-filled words you will find in this entire story. Go tell his disciples, and Peter, and Peter. You see, if the message had simply been, go tell his disciples that he's going to meet them in Galilee just as he had told them before, how do you think Peter would have responded? We know the story of Peter. We spent weeks on it, for those of you that were with us. You know that in the the last night before Jesus would be betrayed and would go to the cross, Peter, after Jesus even asked him to stay with him and to pray with him, couldn't find it within himself to stay up and even pray with Jesus. Jesus. Nonetheless, as Jesus would be taken captive and and stand before a a kangaroo court of Jewish leaders and, and, and Roman leaders, that Peter would ultimately that night deny Jesus, just as he said three times, and not just deny him, but deny even being associated with him or know him. The hope that Peter had placed in this man had been buried in that tomb. When that message came to those disciples, tell them, I'm going to meet them in Galilee just like I said. You know how Peter would have responded? That's for you. That's for the 10 of you. He doesn't mean me. He he knows what I've done. That's for you guys, not me. Which is why you might not read two more grace-filled words in this entire story than this. And Peter... Because Peter needs to know particularly, in this moment, right here, right now, Peter needs to know particularly that the tomb is actually empty. Go and tell the disciples, but make sure you tell Peter. He needs to know the tomb is empty because the resurrection of Jesus is not just an event in time that we need to understand and believe in. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has massive implications, implications that Peter needed to know and that you and I need to know. There's one place in the New Testament that I think compiles and and squeezes the implications of the resurrection into one place in the best way, and that's in a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. So if you've got your Bible, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to look at these real quick. In fact, I'm going to turn there, and and we're we're going to read a little bit ahead of this. 1 Corinthians 15, I I want to start in verse 1 because I want you to see something Paul says before he gets down to these implications. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He, He really did die but he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and and then to the twelve. So more eyewitnesses. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. More, 500, one day resurrected Jesus. Go talk to them, they're still alive. No legend, no myth, go talk to them, they saw him most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So more eyewitnesses, last of all, as to one untimely born. I love that phrase. That's a whole other sermon. But to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Look down at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Then, verse 20. But, you can circle that word if you want, underline it, highlight it, I don't care, make note of it. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell Peter. Make sure Peter hears this. He needs to know the tomb is empty, he needs to know that Jesus has risen. He needs to know that because Jesus is alive, our sins are forgiven. Peter needs to know, you and I, we need to know that because Jesus is alive, not only are our sins forgiven, but the life we live in obedience to Jesus, the life we live in surrender to Jesus, it's not wasted. It's not lived in vain. It's not futile. Peter needs to know this, and and Peter needs to know, and, and you and I need to know that because Jesus is alive, because the tomb is empty, because He was raised bodily from the dead by the power of God, you, Peter, disciples, you and I can continue to proclaim the good news of God's mercy through His Son without fear, with all gentleness and yet with all confidence and even ferocity. And so this morning, in the time that we've got left, I'm I'm going to ask that God would be kind to us and and do one thing, that as we look at those implications very quickly, that he would make alive to you in a way that you have never felt before, what it is exactly you need to be astonished by in this. Because make no mistake, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is not just a historical event in time. It has massive implications for you right here and right now. Make sure Peter understands and make sure we understand because he's alive. He's alive. Your sins are forgiven. I mean, Paul said if he, if he wasn't raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins, but in fact, he has been raised. So, by implication, your sins are forgiven. Jesus had taught that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. We, we, we hear nearly week in and week out, and We hear it in as many ways as the scripture presents it. But the consequences of our sin, the just due of our sin, or as Paul would say, the wages of our sin is death. Jesus came and he said, I came to give my life as a ransom. It's the payment for many. Death is what our sin deserves. And Jesus had taught that he came to give his life, to die the death that we deserve to die because of our sin against God. In fact, the very crucifixion of Jesus, the brutal death of Jesus is a result of sin itself. He came to give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb, that first resurrection Sunday, is proof That God the Father accepted Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice in our place for our sins. That the ransom was paid. No resurrection, no forgiveness. No resurrection, no salvation. No resurrection, as Paul says, you're still in your sins. But look to the resurrection. The resurrection is God the Father's public display for all of time and all of eternity that the debt is paid in full. That Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice in your place for your sin as your ransom has indeed been accepted. For those of you that are visual, take that office stamp, that red paid in full stamp, and imagine God the Father stamping that across the entirety of human history. It's been paid. You ever doubt the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice in your place for your sin? Look no further than the resurrection. He came, he said, to give his life as a ransom for many. And the resurrection is proof that God accepted that ransom, that accepted his life, that accepted his substitutionary sacrifice for sin. But not only that, the Apostle Paul is going to write to another church in Rome, and you can go read it this week, Romans chapter 4, verse 25. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. It's the same way as saying he was given over for our sins. Same way of saying what Jesus said in that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He was delivered over for our sins, but then Paul says he was raised for our justification. What difference does the resurrection make? The Apostle Paul is actually saying that as far as God the Father is concerned, those who have believed upon Jesus as their Savior who through the grace of God by faith alone have believed in Jesus as their substitutionary sacrifice, they are because of Jesus entirely entirely right before God. That's what justified means. Don't be confused by a big word. Justified simply means to be made right before something. The Apostle Paul is telling the church, you need to understand and you need to believe Jesus was given over as the price for your sin to pay for your sin and God raised him from the dead to make you right before him. And for those who have believed upon Jesus as their Savior, who have placed their faith upon His sacrifice in their place, in your place for your sins, God raised Jesus from the dead for your justification. Because of Him, you now stand right before God. That's why if you keep reading Paul's letter to the church in Rome, you'll come to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul will say, For those who are in Christ, for those who have believed upon Jesus, There is therefore now for you no condemnation. No more condemnation for you before God. The resurrection is God's public declaration that his justice has indeed been satisfied, but even greater, that his love is actually certain. Man, if only we could believe it. If only we could believe it. Listen, brothers and sisters, Christians no longer need to feel condemned before God. No more need to feel like you need to earn some extra measure of approval before God. No more sense of need that you've got to prove yourself again to Him. In fact, I want you to hear something. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says something that I'll never be able to write like this, but listen to what he says about this. You need to hear this this morning. Lloyd-Jones says that many Christians believe that they will be acquitted on the last day by the blood of Jesus, and that is true. He says many, but we should all say that. But they never apply this great truth to their day-to-day lives. They sing it on Sunday mornings, but they can't seem to make a way to live it on Monday. Instead, we try to prove ourselves through our work or through our performance or through our success or through our service. But, and he's quoting Jesus on the cross in John 19, it is finished. Now, I want you to hear what Lloyd-Jones says. The work of proving or justifying yourself is unnecessary. It's all been done by Christ. More than that, catch this, don't, don't go to sleep on me. More than that, it's insulting. We must not rob Christ of his glory by treating his work as unfinished, inadequate, or lacking. He says, instead, we should glorify him by resting and relying wholly on his work. So, relax. Enjoy. That's why you'll hear us talk about enjoying grace. Enjoy. Rest. Hear him say, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you have any doubt, That the cross actually did his work. Lloyd-Jones says the resurrection is where you need to look right now. You need have no uncertainty. The resurrection proves that Jesus is exactly who he said he was and that what he said about us is right, which is why by the grace of God we must come to him through faith. Look to the resurrection, Lloyd-Jones says, and know that the payment for your sin has gone through. That the sacrifice of Jesus has been received and accepted. That he really is your Savior. That he did not come just to teach and live for you, but to die for you and be raised up for you. So that the outrageous claims about his death, pain for sin, have indeed been proven right. You need to know the tomb is empty. He's risen and he's alive because of that your sins are forgiven and not just that the life you live in faith the life you live in obedience to him the life you live in following him it's not lived in vain no matter what the world around you wants to say again think about the story for a human perspective for just a moment how foolish must Peter be feeling at this point He had left his business. He had left his home. He only came back through there during the different processes of the ministry following Jesus when they would cross back through there. He was gone from friends. He was gone from family. He had begun to do things that he never thought he would do before. He had begun to place his whole hope and his whole faith in whom he began to believe was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the one that God had promised, and then all of his hope he saw cursed on a tree and laid dead into a tomb. Don't think for a moment. That Peter wasn't wrestling with the reality that the last three years of his life weren't wasted. That he was a fool. That everything that he had done because of this man that was now laying in a tomb had been done in vain. Well, the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, if Jesus was not raised from the dead, everything Peter had done was in vain. And in fact, Peter and every disciple from that day forward are people most to be pitied. If he had not been raised, living for him and doing anything for his glory in his name is an absolute delusion, and we deserve to be pitied, which is why Paul said in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, and that resurrection is the confirmation. It is the establishment of the truthfulness that everything Jesus said about himself and everything Jesus taught and promised to do and promised he will do in the future is actually true. And because he's raised from the dead, if you keep reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul will say in verse 58, you can be steadfast. You can be immovable. You can be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? You can do it knowing your labor's not in vain because he's alive. Because he's risen, you can know that your faith in him is not in vain. Your life is not wasted. The sacrifices that you have made to obey Jesus, they're not wasted. They're not in vain. What it's cost you to forgive those who have hurt you because you've been forgiven so much by Him, it's not in vain. The sacrifices you've made as parents to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, it's not in vain. To pack up your bag and to leave a world that you understand, to go to a place where you know by breathing His name they are going to take your life, it's not in vain because He's alive. And because he's alive, not only are you forgiven and is your life lived for his glory not in vain, you can continue with confidence, with expectation, in gentleness, and even ferocity to proclaim the glorious news of God's grace and mercy to a lost world. You don't have to be afraid. You see, Peter could have been sitting there going, wait a minute. I, I, I was telling people that this man was indeed the son of God, I was misrepresenting God. Think about all the commandments to break, he was saying that this indeed was God. How foolish. Paul says, no, all the preaching, all the teaching, all the sharing of the gospel, all the communicating of the grace of God to others, all the sharing of the hope that's within you, it's not in vain. Not only is it not in vain, it's not useless everything done in the name of the Lord for the glory of God, no matter what it looks like now, isn't just wasted or pitiable, it's precious in the eyes of God. And because the tomb is empty, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear telling the world about Jesus. And here's one of the things I love, and I got to think about it again, particularly for this morning. I don't know if you realize this, but every single time that we gather together on a Sunday morning, yes, we're celebrating the reality of that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead, that he is alive. And it's not just on this special of Sundays in the year on Easter Sunday, but every week we come together and do that. And every week we have the opportunity to respond to that good news. And did you know that every week when we respond to that good news in particular, By receiving communion like we're about to do in a few minutes, we're actually proclaiming the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our sins according to the Scriptures. The night that he was going to be betrayed by Judas, the night that he was going to be handed over to the authorities before he would be crucified. He he had his last Passover meal with his disciples. And while he was eating with them, he took the bread of that Passover meal and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my body given up as a ransom. This is my body broken to pay the price that your sin deserves. And he took the cup of the Passover and he said, this cup, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. His blood that would be shed for the forgiveness and the cleansing of sin. And after he gave that bread and he passed that cup to his disciples, he said, every time you do this, You proclaim my death until I come. See, every time we get to respond to God's word as his people by receiving communion, you're not just taking a piece of bread and and dipping it in a cup of juice and and hoping that that little scrap is going to get you to lunch. When you actually stand up and you come forward and you take a piece of bread remembering that Jesus is, in his body, paid the price for your sin and died the excruciating death that you deserve to die because of your sin and you dip it in that cup remembering his blood that was poured out for the cleansing of your sin, you are proclaiming right then and right there to everyone around that you have placed your faith and your hope and your confidence in him as your substitute by the grace of God. You're actually proclaiming this. And we get the chance to do that in just a moment but it would be foolish of me and unloving of me to, to not say this because, because I love you. You need to understand, if, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you, you need to understand that you, as the Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, are, are still in your sin. And the judgment of God for your sin still rests upon you. Facts about the resurrection, they, they can't save you. The only thing that can save you is by the grace of God, you placing your faith and your hope upon Jesus Christ as the substitute for your sin, Him dying the death you deserve to die, and God raising Him bodily from the grave, resurrecting Him for your forgiveness and your justification. That's the only thing that will save you. And so this morning, I, as we get ready to call the church forward, to receive communion, to proclaim their hope, their faith, their confidence in Jesus, because I love you, I would call you this morning to repent of your sin, turn from your sin. By the grace of God, place your hope, your faith upon Jesus Christ as your substitute, as your Savior. Do that this morning, knowing that this morning, that you do that, you will know the forgiveness of sin. You will know the justification of God, the right standing before Him, and you will be enjoying the fellowship of the family that He has created. I urge you this morning, don't feel like you have to stand up and move along with the crowd. Deal with Jesus. Let Him deal with you. This morning, I would say to every, everyone here, may you receive the, with great joy the news that Jesus Christ did indeed die for your sins according to the Scriptures. And may God, by His Holy Spirit, astound you in the way He knows you need to be astounded by the fact that He raised His Son, Jesus, from the dead for you, your forgiveness, your justification, according to the Scriptures. Let me pray for us, and we'll have the opportunity to respond. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your not just word towards us, but the life of your son lived for us, the death he died in our place, for your acceptance of his sacrifice on our behalf and your powerful and victorious resurrection of him from the tomb. This morning, you know exactly what needs to be done in every single heart here to not only stand amazed at the reality of the resurrection of your son Jesus from the grave, but you know what has to happen in here every morning, in every heart in here, to be astonished by your grace and mercy towards us in it and so we ask that you do the miracle that only you can do and bring us to a place for the first time or the first time in a long time where we stand humbled by your love towards us as we've seen it the life the death the resurrection of your son Jesus may we all walk out of this place having renewed our confidence and faith in him or placed our faith in him for the first time we ask that you would do this in his name for his glory and our joy